Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. My Money and Me with Sumitra Naidu on the home of the Afropolitan. We start the show tonight looking at medical aid schemes. Now, um, you know, various medical aid schemes have shared the costs of admissions for COVID-19. MedScheme, for example, has spent about 14.5 million rand on 97 admissions related to COVID-19. And the average cost per COVID-19 admission is around 150,000 rand. Now, the government employees medical scheme has allocated around 9 100 million rand for COVID-19 treatments during this financial year. Now, to get a better understanding of what the costs and the benefits are for anybody that has a medical aid and anybody that will or may get infected, Dr. Khatlejo Mutudi, Managing Director of the BHF, joins me on the line. A very good evening to you, Doctor. Uh, good evening, Sumitra. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks so much for giving us your time this evening. Thanks for having me. I think what I think what we need to do is firstly understand what's happening in the medical scheme environment. Um, we're hearing about all of this uh, money that's being made of, available, and there was a statement that was issued that money that medical schemes were told to keep some reserves aside. What are we seeing in the hospitals right now? So we we're hearing about a cost of 150,000 per patient. What exactly is happening in the hospitals once somebody goes in for maybe a possible infection? So the, maybe it's important to take a step back and say mm-hmm. that what we're seeing in South Africa is not very different from what's happening in the world. And I think the figures that are bending around is that something like about 80% of people will have either no symptoms or, or have mild disease. And so a lot of medical attention will be focused on the 20% and maybe even more on a smaller percentage of people with COVID, those who end up with the serious or critical illness. Now, the first cost that the medical schemes uh, or, or maybe generally the financial burden on anybody infected with COVID has to uh, come up with is the cost of testing. You will be aware that uh, the initially was one uh, accredited lab uh, run by the NICB and then we've had a few other labs in the private sector that uh, came on the bedwagon and then NHLS as well also capacitated and started testing people. Now because of the newness of the illness um, there is scarcity of the elements that are required for testing. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the, the, the reagents, uh, et cetera, and even the machinery that is uh, required. As a result, uh, the initial cost has been quite high. And I think the first people who published uh, the costs for testing uh, indicated or calculated about 1,400. Uh, it has since come down, uh, um, the average being around 850. But there are some centers that have gone down to uh, 650 and even more recently 500 trends. So the first thing is that to confirm uh, the diagnosis, uh, already the test uh, uh, forces you to uh, uh, dig into your pockets a bit. Now, in the medical uh, uh, schemes arena, what the new the newest developments are that uh, COVID-19 in declared uh, what, is, what is referred to as a prescribed minimum benefit. Now, there are diseases that schemes have to cover, and there is a schedule of elements 
uh, all the ailments that should be covered. The first one is when you see your doctor for the screening. So when they ask questions around where have you been, have you been in contact with people, have you got any illnesses? And then from there, they declare you what they call a person under investigation, and then you go for testing. So from that stage, the screening and then the testing be covered. And if you need any specific treatment, whether on an outpatient basis or hospitalization, it will also be covered. And any complications that emanate from the disease will also be covered. So there is a spectrum of medical costs related to COVID-19. Okay, so this is the amendment that's come through now. So from now, all medical schemes will actually cover patients for COVID-19, right from testing to the treatment thereafter. Yes, exactly. And it includes, sorry, the element that I did not uh, cover is the rehabilitation. Because sometimes uh, with the the critical uh, illness, you might be hospitalized for a while or be Mm -hmm. moribund. And you might also then require rehabilitation afterwards. And that is also covered under the PNB schedules. Okay, so we, you you told me about the, um, you spoke about the testing. Initially, it was around, you know, just to get the diagnosis, you know, the element that you need right at the beginning. It's, it was around 1,400. That's come down. But we're looking yeah. at 150,000 per admission. What What kind of treatment is happening there? Because, you know, as the public, we we don't know exactly what's what's happening exactly in the hospital. What kind of treatment we are under the you know most of us have the understanding that there isn't actually much treatment. We hear about ventilators all the time, but obviously we know that there's no vaccine as yet. So how exactly are these patients being treated? Okay, so there the, the are quite a number of uh, elements that are part of the. I would say treatment component, especially uh, in the hospital setting. So there the will be treatments uh, that are geared towards risk management uh, to prevent transmission of the of the disease or um, to healthcare workers. So um, they, the hospitals have to purchase the, their own protective equipment called PPEs. This includes things like gowns, goggles, masks, etc. And you may have heard that um, for healthcare workers, you need a special type of mask to use the N9. It's uh, slightly pricey. So mm-hmm. uh, over and above just the normal accommodation cost, professional services, medicine, already there is a load uh, on the COVID patient because you want to prevent uh, spread. And that already increases the, uh, the cost. So hospitals will then charge for the accommodation and it will depend on the required level of care. So if the person is uh, critically ill, they might be accommodated in high care uh, or in ICU. What it means uh, is that the personnel required to look after you. It's almost on a mm. one-on-one basis. Uh, which means that a lot more time is devoted to you, the monitoring, etc. So the professional fees uh, would actually be uh, be higher. The other thing is that if you need additional things like oxygen, whether it's, it's via mask or a cannula on the nose or uh, intubation, which is then requires the use of a ventilator, the cost escalates. And as I said, mm. the the level of care and the, the depends. I mean on on the various uh, facilities, just accommodation in ICU 
you could have, uh, and this is just an example, uh, a daily accommodation rate um, of 15,000 rand, just to be nice before you add all the other things. So the longer you stay there, the cost will uh, naturally increase. And then, then you add uh, medicine. Now, you did ask what is, what, what, what is given. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, there are various protocols that have been tested somewhere. Although there isn't uh, an, an outright agreement because data is still coming, there's still quite a lot of research. There are many uh, treatment regimens that uh, people are, are, are giving uh, to test. And, and I'll give the example of how you deal oxygen. Mm. Initially, um, they, they had uh, ventilated a lot of people uh, through putting a tube in them up to a ventilator. And they realized that most people who were ventilated uh, did not come or could not come of it. And recently they said uh, maybe it's better to use some machine that was used to to treat uh, sleep apnea. Mm. It's called a, a sleep machine. So there is quite a, a, an evolution of what is required as standard treatment. And uh, because of how far the the pandemic has developed. Uh, we, we haven't quite, uh, uh, the medical fraternity rather, has not quite wrapped its head around what is the perfect thing. People have talked mm. about anti-malarial drugs. Yes. Some have tried anti, uh, anti-retrovirals. In some patients, it seems to be waiting, but some studies then show that it doesn't work. People have talked about the anti-malarial, um, and there were some studies that have come out of the U.S., which initially showed promise. Uh, but it looked like if you started them later on, they were not as effective as you started. So there's still quite a lot of uh, um, uh, trial and error in terms yeah. of what works. Um, so people actually treat symptomatically uh, according to how they present. The other thing that complicates is that people who uh, become critical uh, usually have other underlying conditions. Mm. And we have we hearing reports of how COVID complicates those uh, conditions. Um, initially, we just thought that uh, it is the, the respiratory system that is affected. Now we hear that people develop bleeding uh, disorders, etc. There's been reports coming out of the U.S. with children developing uh, a rare condition um, called Kawasaki, uh, which prevents in a way that was not envisaged. So there's still quite a lot of learning and trial and error in terms of uh, the treatment that is being used. Got you. Um, Afropolitans, I'm talking um, to Dr. Khatlejo Mutudi, and he is from the Board of Healthcare Funders, is the director of the Board of Healthcare Funders, and he's talking us through the medical aid schemes, um, the uh, uh, the latest amendment to that uh, Medical Schemes Act, all um Everybody that has a medical aid will actually be covered um, for COVID nineteen, uh, right up and uh, from diagnosis right right up until uh, treatment and rehabilitation thereafter. Uh, please give us a call if you have any questions for him. The number is zero eight six double zero double zero nine five nine. Doctor, as I was talking about, you know the fact that this amendment has come to the fore. It's obviously really good news because this is, uh, it becomes a really costly exercise. What happens to those that are not on any form of medical aid? So 
the, the, the approach has been, and I think you know that we've got a, um, a divided healthcare system, mm-hmm. uh, that there are people who are not insured and the state looks after them. The processes are, uh, I would say, fairly similar, but it depends on, on the capacity and also where, where the people are, um, because it's obviously the admitted in the true service uh, facility. So what, what has been done, and maybe let me check, in terms of preparation for the possible uh, uh, hospitalization, uh, there has been quite a, a lot of work done to capacitate uh, the current uh, um, uh, facilities that are available. Mm-hmm. And you, you would have heard that there were some, what 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 is really called field hospitals, that were set up in Joburg, you know, you know about the Nazareth uh, yes. mm-hmm. area. In Cape Town, they've converted the uh, Cape Town International Conference Center into such. Now, the, 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 the thinking was that uh, where necessary, either the mild cases or those that require quarantine, should rather be accommodated in those centers and then you leave the hospitals uh, open for those that require more uh, intense treatment. That's the first thing. The second thing is that there was pronouncement by the uh, the various provinces, including medical aid as well, to put a halt on what is called elective uh, surgery and other other treatments. And also to make sure that um, if the treatment that you require is not urgent or can be deferred for some time, that be done. So that if there is an overload that was observed elsewhere, and you've seen the cases from the U.S. and Italy, etc., um, it would better uh, uh, be better to have uh, um, space in hospitals uh, to to be able to treat the, the, the critical ill. So that has been the uh, I think the preparation, um, and it's, it's almost similar uh, in both the, the public and the, the private sector. Okay, but all costs will be covered even if you don't have medical aid. That will be covered by government. Yes, that, okay. that, that, that is, a, that is a, uh, the understanding. Uh, I think the, the the public sector has been looking after people and they have a, um, a, a, um, a, a it's not a triage, uh, mm. but they, they look at a, 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 a needs uh, assessment yeah. and, 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 and classify you according to your income, etc. And then uh, you'll be able to, to be covered for, for the care that you require. So as we know it, government is ready now. The healthcare system seems to be better prepared. I mean, as you said, you know, the NASREC um, medical center has been set up. I've actually looked at a video of all the rooms there. There's about 500 rooms, I think, and um, um, especially made for isolation cases. So that doesn't seem to be an issue. But when when you look at all the various hospitals, because we knew that, you know, earlier when, when the virus arrived in, you know, started infecting people in South Africa, um, that all of the hospitals weren't prepared. They didn't have all the elements for testing. Right now, um, if you are in different areas, are you able to access any hospital in your area or are they selected areas for you to go to? So the, the, I think the the various areas you'd find that in terms of uh, availability of uh, um, facilities, they would vary. Mm. There are provinces that maybe are fortunate, especially those that are more urban, 
um, so if you look at places like Gauteng and Western, Western Cape, for example, they would have various levels of, uh, of uh, um, facilities, starting from primary care uh, to tertiary care. Um, the more rural uh, uh, provinces uh, could maybe have at best a regional hospital. So um, that is the infrastructure um, that we've been having for a while. And, the appropriate care would be given based on the um, uh, and the facilities. The other element is to look at the the human uh, resources that are deployed, and I, I mm. think that uh, there has been a bit of work to try and capacitate uh, this area. So, from the private side, a number of uh, organisations have put together um, uh, organisations that recruited uh, practitioners to try and do work, and this. This started from even setting up call centers mm-hmm. where doctors would volunteer and patients could actually call in if they had uh, symptoms that they were not sure of or uh, if they were diagnosed already and wanted to find out what's happening in their treatment. Those sort of call centers would help, uh, what we call uh, telehealth, uh, would help uh, reduce the burden. Uh, on the system, that's uh, on the the private time. Mm. Uh, secondly, um, we lobbied with the health professional councils uh, to uh, uh, amend the requirements for telehealth, even for general practitioners as well as other primary care practitioners. Um, and we we were happy that uh, HPCSA was able to accommodate what the industry uh, requested in that um, you should not be barred from uh, having a virtual consultation. Mm. And this helps in terms of making more practitioners available, but also prevents the spread. Because uh, you would understand if somebody uh, just came to a practice um, and often there's overcrowding and then they either have COVID or, or have got symptoms um, and they see with others and may even infect uh, other people who require health or may infect the practitioner. Mm. Uh, so it was better it was better to have another system that would not just alleviate the pressure on the system but also uh, halt the spread of the of the of the disease. Mm. And then you uh, further than that, you've also seen um uh, interventions from the government where uh, they increase capacity by reaching out to uh, Cuba, for example. And I think there's also been an attempt to recruit our healthcare practitioners who were not in the private sector to come work. There was also a, um, a, a, a call out from the army yeah. uh, to to have other practitioners registering as reservists. That in an attempt mm. to bolster up the, um, the human uh, resources element. We, we, we are ready, but what happens when we have, because we are getting these um, concerns coming through, even from some of the Cuban doctors, that um, there is this massive wave that is still going to hit us, this massive wave of infections. Are the medical aid schemes... Um, do they have enough in terms of reserves to cover all of this? I mean, are they going to be okay to cover all of the costs if we have the sudden wave? Um, hopefully we don't, but in case it does happen, are they prepared financially? 
So that's that's a that's a difficult question to answer, mm. Sumitra, because uh, um, I think our country has behaved different from other places. Um, some are attributing this to the early lockdown, so we've been able to stand the initial wave. And the data that has come through mm. now shows that the occupancy rate has been quite low in the hospital. So um, maybe the intention of the lockdown has actually been achieved in that yeah. we're getting a slow progression of the disease so that we do not overwhelm uh, the system. Um, if we do get this huge wave, uh, as as we've seen in other areas, um, I think that the arrangements that have been made now would actually even help uh, if uh, it would help uh, for this thing to cope better mm. than had it hit us three weeks or a month ago while we did not have the extra capacity that uh, uh, we had. I mean, in, in the states, uh, I think it was said that the country had about, I think, six or seven thousand uh, critical care beds yeah. and only about three or four thousand ventilators. But in this last week, I don't have the latest figures, there has been an attempt to, to ramp up. So I think uh, the, the, we, we, we have been successful mm. in delaying the high impact. If we see um, the, the numbers that uh, are predicted uh, with the um, uh, Infections running into hundreds of thousands. Uh, it means we might still have a system that is overwhelmed. And I think the yeah. danger has always been not so much the, the fact that we cannot treat those that are critical, but that those that are critical cannot all be accommodated in hospitals mm-hmm. to receive some care. I think that would be the, the, uh, the, uh, the fact uh, uh, advance of the Dr. Dr. before I let you go we are running out of time I'm actually way over time one more quick yeah. question a question that has come up uh, very often you know in the times that we're living in now so many people have lost their jobs so many people are on half salaries um, and healthcare is very expensive in this country private healthcare so many many people have not everybody, but many have actually stopped paying their medical aid. Some are missing it purely because they they have no other funds. What happens to those people that have actually missed payments on their medical aids, their medical schemes? Um, will they still be covered? So the 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 issue around uh, financial relief. Uh, I think some schemes have come up with plans, and I think they they they. they there is a concept around payment holidays that have been discussed. Now, unfortunately, in the medical schemes, for those things to be implemented, there has to be at least a two-stage process. The first one is that the trustees of the scheme might be able to pass a resolution in, uh, in the light of the scheme rules. And secondly, if relief is sought to implement some sort of payment holiday, the scheme would then have to apply to the Council for Medical Scheme to get an exemption from the Medical Schemes Act because the relationship between a beneficiary and the scheme as defined by the Act when they talk about the business of a medical scheme is that healthcare will be provided by the scheme in exchange for a contribution. 
And then it's further said that if contribution is not received within a particular time, uh, time, time frame, the scheme may either suspend or uh, terminate membership. And those are the exemptions that would then have to be sought uh, from, from, from the regulator. Schemes have also been uh, innovative in terms of other relief methods. Mentioned those that maybe are not getting the entire salary packages. Some schemes have made pronouncements to the effect that yeah. people can downgrade their options mid-year. Um, and it does not hurt their chances of being covered. Since COVID is PMD or prescribed benefit condition, even the lowest, the lowest of the options covers it fully. Uh, so, um, as I said, there will be very method that uh, the schemes uh, look at. And, and uh, we've got 78 schemes, and if you look at their profile, mm-hmm. none of them are the same. Some are employer-based, yeah. uh, some are open. And those that are employed, some resources to release from their uh, employers to say cover more than the usual portion of contribution. I definitely think that we need to explore this a little bit more and just find out about that. I mean, I know Discovery is going to be having um, a, a big press conference tomorrow and giving details about what they're doing as well. So um, we'll see if we can um, maybe get more detail on what the different medical aids are doing for people that need um, payment holidays. Um, Dr. Khatlejo Muturi, thank you so much for your time this evening. He's the Managing Director of the Board of Health care funders my money and me with sumitra naidu every tuesday from 8 to 9 p.m kaya fm home of the afropolitan rewinding rewinding kaya fm on fm rewind visit kayafm.co.za for more